As I mentioned at the beginning, <clears throat> the piece of uh, scripture that God has for our learning and edification this winter is Paul and Timothy's letter to the church in Philippi. Uh, before I read the uh, opening few verses of this letter, uh, allow me to take some time to share some important background information. Paul's ministry in Philippi uh, is a fascinating story in and of itself. After participating in the Council of Jerusalem, Paul set off on his second missionary journey. With Silas and Luke, he traveled north into Syria and Cilicia. Along the way, he visited and he encouraged uh, the churches that he had planted and the communities that he had assembled on his first journey. When Paul and, uh, and his company came to Derby and Lystra, oh, you guys can see that, yeah, just south of Galatia there, that, in that area, they meet a, a, a young disciple named Timothy. Paul, liked Timothy, saw potential in him as a minister, and uh, so he invited Timothy to join the mission. What happens next is a little strange. In Acts 16, Luke records that the Spirit prevented Paul and his companions from preaching the gospel in Asia. So that's where Ephesus is and South Colossae. Uh, Paul will eventually return to that area, but at that time they are prevented uh, from, from preaching there. Additionally, the Spirit would not travel, allow them to travel north into Bithynia. So that's the area just south of the, the Black Sea. So they couldn't go south and they couldn't go north. They were not allowed to go. The Spirit prevented them. I'm sure that this confused Paul and his companions, but they pressed on, trusting that uh, God, the Spirit, would open doors for them at the right time. And indeed, that is what happened. One night, Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia. The man was begging Paul to come and help. So immediately, Paul and his companions headed for the coast. They boarded a ship in Troas and sailed off to Neapolis, and from there, they traveled on foot to the most prominent city in Macedonia, Philippi. So there's the arrow pointing. So that the north side of Greece there is the area of Macedonia. Philippi, what do we know about this city? We know that it was founded by Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. Years later, it was conquered by Octavian, who had become Caesar Augustus. After Octavian conquered the city, he gave the fertile land that surrounded the city to his soldiers as a gift. So in short order, Philippi went from being a Greek town to being a Greek and Roman mix. Now, if you know anything about retired soldiers, you know that they're generally a patriotic bunch, especially when they've just been given a lot of land. In fact, that's partly why Octavian gave the gift of land to his soldiers. He wanted to create a patriotic outpost at the eastern side of his kingdom. So Philippi was loyal to Rome, loyal to Caesar. In fact, in time, they would even come to refer to Caesar as their lord and savior. That's the language that they would use. So this will become important as we uh, consider some of the opposition that the early church faced in Philippi. So Paul and his companions arrive in Philippi, and on the Sabbath, they go down to the river to pray. While there, they meet a woman named Lydia. She's in business, a dealer in purple cloth. Luke, Luke tells us that she is also a God worshiper, and by God's grace, the Spirit opens Lydia's heart to receive the good news about Jesus Christ. 
In fact, Lydia's whole household receives the good news about Jesus Christ, and they are baptized into his kingdom. A few days later, while walking through the city, a slave girl uh, began to pester Paul. She followed him around and, and created a scene wherever they went. After a few days of this, Paul turned to the woman and engaged her directly, and he cast the demon out of her. This angered the slave girl's owners. They had been profiting off of this slave girl's oppression, and her deliverance was bad for business. To make a long story short, Paul and Silas ended up in prison that night. But even though they were there, bound and in chains, their hearts were filled with joy, and they prayed, and they sang hymns, and about midnight, an earthquake rattled the city, and it rattled the prison, and the doors flung open, and the chains fell off. The jailer who was there watching uh, watching all the prisoners, was about to kill himself because he thought all the prisoners had run away. But Paul said, no, don't do that. Don't kill yourself. We're all still here. And then Paul had the opportunity to minister to that man, shared the gospel. And that man came to accept Jesus Christ. And that man's whole household was also baptized into the kingdom. And that's how the church in Philippi got its start. It was born not of Paul's hard work, but of God's spirit. Paul was there, of course, and did work his hardest. Paul followed God's lead and obediently proclaimed, proclaimed the gospel. But the whole process was, was spirit-led from start to finish. Fast forward to a later date. The church in Philippi has grown and Paul has moved on. He's in prison again, probably in Rome, but scholars aren't totally sure on the location. And then one day while in prison, Paul receives a visitor. A man named Epaphroditus comes to see him. Epaphroditus is from Philippi, and he comes bearing gifts on behalf of the church. He's probably bringing some money, maybe some food, maybe some clothing. Think of just like a big old church care package to someone who's in need. Well, this, as you can imagine, just filled Paul's heart with joy and thankfulness. And notes of gratitude permeate this entire letter. Um, you'll hear that loud and clear in the verses we're about to read. The conversation that takes place between, between Epaphroditus and Paul doesn't show up in Acts, so all we know about it is what we can derive from the letter. But it's clear that they talked about how the church was doing in Philippi because Paul does bring up a few of the issues in this letter that need to be addressed. But in the end, this letter is not about issues. It's about friendship and encouragement. It's about partnership in Christ and the gospel of Christ and the ministry of Christ in the world. So with all this in mind, let's turn to the letter itself. I invite you to please stand as we read God's word this morning. Hear God's word to the church today. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy 
because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Can you feel the love in the opening of Paul's letter? He's filled with joy when he thinks of the church. He says that God can testify as his witness that he longs for them with the affections of Christ Jesus. Often when Paul writes a letter, he feels it necessary to begin with an assertion of his God-given authority. For instance, when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he begins by letting them all know that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This is Paul laying out his credentials. He wants everyone in Corinth to know that this letter is not the opinion of an ordinary man, but the written word of one who has been set aside by Jesus himself. But here in Philippians, there's no need for Paul to lay down his credentials. He already has their respect. He's among friends. So instead of referring to himself as an apostle, he refers to himself and Timothy as servants. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. The English word servants uh, doesn't fully capture the, the meaning of the Greek word. The Greek word is doulos, which means slave, one who belongs to another. One who lives in the service of another. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Christ meaning the anointed one. Christ meaning the anointed king. Christ is not just Jesus' last name. It's Jesus' title. Means king, true king. Paul and Timothy, slaves of King Jesus. There's some political overtones here. For if Jesus is king... That means that Caesar is not, or at least Caesar is under Jesus. They need to, uh, the church in Philippi needed to hear this. The weight of this word would not have been lost on them. When Caesar's face is on all your coins, and when statues of him are placed all around the city, and when everyone around you declares their allegiance to Caesar and calls him their Lord and Savior, you need to hear that this other word, this word that Christ is above, that King Jesus is king. Right away, Paul makes it very clear who he is and who he belongs to, and he makes it clear who the church belongs to, too. To all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Saints 
in Christ Jesus. Saints. I don't know what you think of when you think of saints. I usually think of really special people, often immortalized in stained glass windows or who have like halos around their head in some way. I don't usually think of regular people like you and me. I wonder, does anyone here consider themselves to be a saint? We usually say, I'm no saint, right? That's sort of the, our go-to line. I'm no saint. Well, I have good news for you today and for me. For as far as Paul is concerned, sainthood is not something that is achieved. It is something that is bestowed upon those who are found in Christ Jesus. Sainthood is the identity of the cleansed and redeemed family of God. All those who are in Christ Jesus are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. When the Father looks upon the people who belong to his Son, he sees saints, the holy ones who belong to him. I know it, sometimes it doesn't always look or feel this way. I mean, sometimes when I'm looking for volunteers, I open up the VCRC directory and I piece through the pages and true confessions. I don't always see a whole pile of saints, right? I get a little discouraged sometimes. How are we going to get things going around here? What, what, could, God, what could God possibly be, be up to with a bunch of sinners like us? Now, obviously, I'm... I'm joking a bit. I have, I have a higher opinion of the church here. But I'm sure that you know what I'm talking about. I mean, it's not hard to get a little jaded when it comes to the body of Christ. These people that we sit in church with every Sunday and try to do things together from time to time. I mean, some of you been, have been in this church community for so long. And when you look out over the congregation, you don't immediately see saints. You see foibles and quirks. You see problems. That person, you know, she's never going to change. Oh, don't worry about that guy. You know, just like a, he's complaining all the time. Like we have these opinions and thoughts about people, and it's not always saints. It's something else. So sometimes we get the urge to, to start fresh to start or to find a church that really looks and acts like a church is supposed to look and act like. And so we leave one church and head to another. And initially the grass is greener on the other side, but then you get to know people and people begin to disappoint you and hurt you. And we become jaded with the church once again. There's a great example of this in um, C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. That book, it's essential reading. Um, it's, a, it's a book, um, an over-demon de is writing to his subject, basically. So it's coming from that perspective. And this, this uh, under-demon is essentially, his, he's been given somebody that he has to try to throw off path, right? This person, he wants to make their life miserable. That's the job of the demon, essentially. And there's bad news because this man is started to go to church. And so the demons are like, how do, we, how do we get this guy out of church? This is not good. He's on the, right, he's on the wrong track. And so the over-demon, he's mentoring this younger demon. He's saying, just get him to start paying attention to all the quirks of the people in the church. Make sure that he becomes disappointed and 
disillusioned. Make sure that he doesn't see the church like our enemy, like Jesus sees the church, right? And that's, that's the way. Don't try to get him out of there. Just try to make him disillusioned. It's a great, uh, that's, it's totally what happens to us. So sometimes we get the urge to start fresh, but we become disillusioned. And from a worldly perspective, most Christian communities aren't much to look at. But from God's perspective, we are the holy ones who belong to his holy son, the people in whom God delights. This perspective is so foundational for how we view ourselves and each other. We aren't primarily sinners. We aren't just sinners, even forgiven sinners. That's not even our primary identity anymore. We are saints in Christ Jesus. And your neighbor in the pew, he or she is a saint in whom Christ dwells. When talking or thinking about them, you should put the word saint before their name. Imagine them with a halo. See them as God sees them. St. Alice, St. Paul, St. Judy, St. Anne. See them how God sees them. Sainthood is the church's current identity and future destiny. To all the saints. I thank my God every time I remember you, continues Paul. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Why? Why does he pray with joy? Because of your partnership in the gospel from this day until now. You see, Lydia didn't just receive Christ. She brought Paul and his, com- and his companions into her household. The jailer didn't just receive Christ, but he brought Paul and his companions into his household and then served them a meal. And when Paul left Philippi, the church continued the mission of the gospel in Philippi when Paul wasn't there. And now Paul is in prison and in need of support. And so members of the church take up an offering and they send it to Paul. So not only are they saints in Christ Jesus, but they are partners in the mission of Jesus. This is what fills Paul with joy. The Greek word translated partnership is koinonia. It means fellowship. It means a sharing in. In Acts 2, we read that uh, all the followers of Jesus, the new followers of Jesus in Jerusalem, um, they devoted themselves to the koinonia, to the fellowship. My favorite modern-day example, or literary example, I should say, of koinonia is found in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, especially the second movie, The Fellowship of the Ring. When the Fellowship of the Ring is formed, it's such a, such a powerful scene. Representatives from different kingdoms of Middle-earth, they, they gather together for a meeting and they, they create a team, they create a, a partnership. Each brings their gift to the table. The elf brings his bow, the man brings his sword, the dwarf brings his axe. They all bring something to offer and then they make a covenant together. They commit themselves to the mission of seeing the ring destroyed and Middle Earth restored to something like Shalom. That's koinonia. That's partnership in ministry. Christians are people. They are saints in Christ Jesus that God has gathered together. 
We are his chosen saints, but not the frozen chosen. The Spirit has been poured out on the church. Gifts have been given, and they are to be put on the table and used for the furtherance of the mission. And the furtherance of the mission, what is the mission? It's that this world-shaking news about Jesus Christ, his death, resurrection, and ascension, the fact that he is Lord, that it might be proclaimed around the world and people would come into relationship with him and find wholeness in his kingdom. Today we use the word membership to talk about being a part of the church. Membership is an okay word, I I have a mixed relationship with that word. Sometimes I think about like membership in a golf club or something like that, and that's the part of the word I don't like. But a member of the body, like we have, like our arm is a member of my body. That's a better way of thinking about it. But in a way, I much prefer the word partnership instead of membership. Because when I think of membership, I think of the golf club, but I also just think of a piece of paper sitting in a filing cabinet somewhere. And that's not, that's not the vision of the New Testament, just having your name in a filing cabinet somewhere. It's about partnership in the mission of Jesus. That's the church, saints who lay their gifts on the table, who become partners in the mission of Jesus. Next time we have a congregational meeting, I'm going to call it a partners in the gospel meeting. Our Sunday school teachers right now are partners in the gospel. They are downstairs teaching our children about Jesus and how to live a life in service to him. Those of you who sing at Saanich Peninsula Hospital on Sunday afternoons, you are partners in the gospel. You are sharing the good news about Jesus with people who in many ways are just forgotten in our society, and they need to hear the message that they too are valuable. You who pray for missionaries and who quietly give money to resonate global missions, you are partners in the gospel. And this gives Paul joy, and this gives Pastor David joy, and this gives God joy. And all this, all that Jesus has done and all that the church is doing in partnership with Jesus and Paul, it just fills Paul with this this confidence. He's confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This word from Paul was undoubtedly a note of assurance for the church in Philippi. Recall that they were surrounded by people who were loyal, first and foremost, to Caesar. It seems pretty clear that this community is facing a fair bit of pressure to conform. Maybe that pressure was mounting. Maybe they were worried about their future as a community or their future as individuals. But with these words, Paul reassures the saints, don't worry, God's got you. Remember how the church began. God brought it together. He's got you. He's not going to let go of you, not till he returns. Paul didn't have the Heidelberg Catechism at his disposal, but if he did, this would be the perfect time for him to quote question and answer one. What is your only comfort in life and in death? The question goes, and the answer, that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, 
to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And then it continues on. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And those who belong to Jesus Christ can be confident of this that he who began a good work will carry it on to completion. God doesn't let his holy ones go. I had the uh, privilege, and it wasn't really a privilege, um, to visit uh, Ruth Longpray last weekend. And I got a phone call that she was dying and in the hospital, and I had just the, the perfect window of time, so I just got in the car and I, and I went there. She was breathing really heavily, not quite conscience, uh, conscious at, the, at that moment. Ruth was uh, a saint, Saint Ruth in Christ Jesus. But she didn't always feel like it. She didn't always have a lot of assurance. My visits with her, that would come out sometimes. I didn't read Philippians 1 over her uh, in her hospital room. Instead, I read Psalm 23. And at the end of Psalm 23, uh, the psalmist has similar notes of assurance. Surely his goodness and love will follow me or pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's that same message that God doesn't let go. Surely his goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Ruth can rest in peace. So Paul is grateful for the saints and their partnership in the gospel. He's confident that God, who began this good work in their midst, is not going to just let it go, but he's going to stick with them. He's going to hold on to them, bring that to completion. The next thing that Paul does is tell them that he's praying for them. He also tells them the content of his prayers for the church. And this is my prayer, continues Paul, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So in essence here, Paul's prayer for the Philippian church is simply that they continue to grow up into this identity that they have in Christ. That not only that they are saints, but they begin to grow more and more into sainthood, to display more and more of, of the righteousness of Christ in their community. He wants their love to abound more and more. So the love is there, but there can be more. Keep growing up into love. He prays that their knowledge of God's will and their moral insight would expand so that they would be wise and discerning about how to love in a way that glorifies God and give themselves fully to, to what really matters in life and not be concerned about the other things. He prays that they may be pure and blameless, the pure and blameless bride of Christ, ready to receive her groom when Jesus comes. Paul, Paul's prayer is that the church would shine like stars. That's an image he uses elsewhere in this, this letter. Shine like stars. Jesus would say his prayer for the church, he, he invites the church to be like a city on the hill, that others would be drawn in by the light, that they'd come to life in Christ 
and glorify God because of the church's witness. What does this righteous way of life look like in action? It's the way that was modeled by Jesus. Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be held on to, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself. He became obedient unto death, loving like God loved the world through his Son, empowered by the Son. That is the righteous way. That is the righteous fruit. That is the life that gives God glory. We'll be returning to this prayer as the series progresses because most of the key themes in the letter are actually found right here in Paul's prayer for the church. Saints, partners in the gospel, servants who belong to King Jesus, this is who we really are. And I don't know about you, but the busyness, complexity, and sometimes flat-out drudgery of life has a way of flattening my world and making me forget these transcendent, powerful truths. And after a week of gray days, of changing diapers, of wrestling with my own sin, I don't always feel like a saint or a partner in the gospel. But my feelings don't change the reality. God's got me. God's got you. He began this work. He's not going to stop it. He's not going to let you go. And there are things that you have been given, things that you have in Christ that need to be laid on the table so that the body of Christ can be built up, so that the mission of the gospel can go forward in the world. Let's link arms together to continue pressing towards that goal as we await the return of our King. Amen.